Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we unfold your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Bijul Trevedi talks about cystic fibrosis in her book, Breath from Salt. After that, you'll hear about Dolphin Facebook and antibiotic resistance from the final FameLab Australia 2020 finals. The news will return next week. Cystic fibrosis and its cure. Cystic fibrosis is also known as CF for short. Bijal Trevedi is the science and technology editor at The Conversation in the US. She's written a book called Cystic Fibrosis, A Deadly Genetic Disease, A New Era in Science, and The Patients and Families Who Changed Medicine Forever. Bijal has a master's degree in molecular cell developmental biology and a second master's in science journalism. I spoke to her across the time difference between Sydney and the US using Skype. I began by asking her, what is cystic fibrosis? Cystic fibrosis is a really, really horrible inherited fatal lung disease. And it is actually one of the most common genetic diseases in Caucasians. In Australia, for example, approximately one in 2,500 to 3,500 births are children who have cystic fibrosis. And it's, it's all caused by a mutation in just one single gene. And when the, when the disease was first characterized in 1938 by an amazing power woman scientist named Dorothy Anderson, she described it as cystic fibrosis of the pancreas. But really, it, this disease affects much more than the pancreas. It, it affects the lungs. It fills them with a sticky, sticky, horrible mucus. And what that mucus does is it clogs up all the airways in the lungs. And bacteria and viruses just thrive in this mucus. And basically, the person's lung capacity is destroyed by this thick mucus, so they can't inhale a good breath. And they're prone to horrible lung infections their whole life. And in the 30s and before then, um, children often didn't live past their first year. But as treatments inched forward, we discovered that there was a lot more to this disease than the lungs or the pancreas. It also makes your sweat salty. And it's one of the only diseases that does that. It wipes out your pancreas. So... Many of the patients who have cystic fibrosis become diabetic later in life because you can't produce insulin if you don't have a pancreas. They suffer from malnutrition because the gut is wiped out and they're not able to digest food. And if they can't digest food, they suffer from malnutrition and they get a very, very bloated belly, which almost looks like children who suffer starvation in Africa or India or in a developing country. So it's a really, really brutal disease. It wreaks havoc on the whole body. And it's a miracle that we've come up with (laughs) cures now. So can we 
cure it or can we just treat the symptoms? All right. So I maybe I overstated there. So <laughs> we have developed treatments. And when I say we, I mean the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which is based in Bethesda, Maryland in the United States, and a company called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Together, they have developed treatments for this disease that are good for about 90% of the population with CF. That's not bad at all. It's good, but it's not done yet, <laughs> as anybody in that community will tell you. Because the cystic fibrosis gene, I mean, it might sound simple to say that mutations in this one single gene cause this disease, but in fact, you know, there are more than 2,000 known mutations in this one single gene. So it's an incredibly, I mean, although it sounds simple, it's incredibly complex. So while there are treatments that, that work for many patients, there are still some mutations in this gene that are not fixed by any of these current drugs. Your book is called Breath from Salt, and you mentioned that they have saltier sweat than people without the illness. What's the connection to salt? Ah, so this, this is actually really interesting. And this was one of the first symptoms of the disease that was recognized as far back as the 1600s. In fact, there was a European folk song that basically said, if the child's brow tastes salty when kissed, then the child was bewitched. And often these children were killed because they were thought to be cursed or be witches or, or some such thing. But what is actually going on is that the gene that is mutated in this disease regulates the balance of salt and water in every part of the body. And in the lungs, the salt water balance is dysregulated which is why the mucus is all thick and sticky and doesn't flow. It should flow like a river, as it does in most people. But in CF patients, because they don't have the right salt water balance, it gets sticky. Now, what happens in their skin is normally when we sweat, the, the cells that line the sweat glands in the skin the job of these cells is to sort of grab back your sodium and your chloride, which are two components of the table salt molecule. Because salt is precious in our body, our blood pressure depends on, on salt, and so we need the right balance. So these sweat glands should be pulling your salt back into your body. But in people with CF, their protein that does this job, it's not working. So that means that they release a lot more salt in their sweat. And that was one of the first ways, and still to this day, it's the gold standard for cystic fibrosis, measuring the saltiness of sweat. When did they start working out what was going wrong with cystic fibrosis? Well, first, there was a scientist by the name of Paul Quinton. And Paul Quinton doesn't just have CF but he is a researcher who chose to study his own disease. So he began sort of excavating cores of his skin. You know, a lot of scientists, famous scientists have used their own body as sort of an experimental organ. 
and Paul Quinton pulled out chunks of his skin and studied his own sweat glands. And he figured out that the problem was that his sweat glands didn't work the way they do in someone without this disease. And they couldn't pull the salt back into the body. Now, so he figured out the problem as it related to the, the sweat glands. And then over on the East Coast, we had another team of scientists, Michael Knowles and Richard Boucher. And what they found was that the protein wasn't doing its job in the lungs. So it wasn't releasing enough water into the airways of the lungs to keep all of the mucus flowing. So the mucus, it's, you know, the, the structure of your lungs, it's like an inverted tree. The outer airways are like those tiny, tiny twigs. And all the mucus should move from there up into the bronchi and into the trachea and out either through the nose and mouth, or if you swallow it, it should go into your gut. But they discovered that because this protein was malfunctioning in the lungs, you had really sticky mucus. So it was these two teams, Paul Quinton on the West Coast and Rick Boucher and Mike Knowles on the East Coast, who figured out the implications of the mutation in the protein. And this was in the early 1980s. So they figured out what was going wrong with that protein. But it wasn't until, say, 40 years later that you really have a treatment based on that knowledge. Can that salt difference affect other parts of the body, like the nervous system? It doesn't affect thinking or cognition. What actually kills the patients is the lung infections. Because basically, so you're this one protein, because of these genetic mutations, does not work properly. So it can't regulate the mucus in the airways. And you, I, I know mucus probably sounds disgusting to a lot of people, but mucus is an essential part of our lung functions. The mucus catches viruses, which as we all know during a pandemic is very important. It catches the viruses, it catches the bacteria, it captures dirt and debris and it flushes them all out of our lungs. It keeps our airways clean. So when the protein that causes cystic fibrosis, when it malfunctions, these rivers of mucus no longer flow. And that's when you have bacteria in the lungs, you have viruses, and they start causing infections. And then basically you have the immune system fighting the viruses and the bacteria and this chemical warfare that ensues basically destroys the lung tissue. So not only can patients not breathe because of this thick mucus, but then you have on top of that, these terrible infections and it's ultimately patients die of lung infections or if they're lucky, they're able to get a transplant. But hopefully from this point on, that won't be the case for most patients. And there's a story of patient advocacy here. Absolutely. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in the US, it, it launched in 1955, basically because there were no resources for these patients. You know, nobody knew what the cause of this disease was. No one knew how to treat it. And these children were dying horrible deaths before they reached their fifth birthday. So this very dedicated group of parents came together to start this foundation 
to start fundraising so that they could fund specialized care centers which would look after their children so that they would sort of culture this group of doctors who were experts on this disease. And on the other hand, they wanted to fund research to figure out the cause of the disease. It became very clear early on. One of the really brilliant things that they started doing was any patient that visited the care centers would be documented from that point on. So the state of their health, their lung function, how high their salt sweat was, and dozens and dozens of pieces of vital statistics were documented on each patient. And as the culture, this organization, they quickly realized that if you want a cure, then patients have to participate in the medicine. They have to volunteer for clinical trials. They have to In some ways, they have to volunteer to be guinea pigs. And I think very early on, the patients understood that they had to partake in this whole process of drug development. They had to cooperate with the researchers. They had to volunteer for trials. They had to be active participants, not just in fundraising, but in the research. And I think that's one area where the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has really made a huge impact because an enormous proportion of the patients who are seen at these care centers participated in clinical trials. And not just one clinical trial, there are patients living today who participated in gene therapy trials in the early 90s. So I think participation is a huge part of patient advocacy. And without it, you're not going to be able to develop treatments and you're not going to be able to get patient input on what they need. For example, one of the drugs, it could have been administered through a nebulizer, but patients actually spoke up and they said, no, we want pills. We don't want any more nebulizers. We don't want to inhale our medication. So the patients were very, very vocal during the development of these drugs and, you know, during the medical research that preceded it. And that's extra impressive, not only because of the way they were suffering, but because there's statistically quite few of them compared to the more well-resourced illnesses. That's right. I mean, it's amazing. In in the US, you have 30,000 patients of all ages, and life expectancy now is about 47 years old. And a huge proportion of those patients, beginning when they're very, very young, have participated in clinical trials. And there are now dozens of drugs, whether it's a new type of antibiotic, whether it's a new type of inhaler to loosen up the mucus in your lungs, whether it's another one of these new drugs that Vertex Pharmaceuticals has developed. So many of these patients participated in those trials. And that's a huge risk. But I think there is a level of altruism in this community that's just very, very impressive and a willingness to participate in all aspects of development. Surely it's got to help if you've actually got researchers who suffer the illness that are looking into it as well. Well, Paul Quinton is one in a million, (laughs) as any CF researcher will tell you. He's incomparable. It helped that he helped discover what was actually going wrong with the protein. That was a huge breakthrough. 
And if you were to characterize, you know, three breakthroughs in the history of this disease, one would be the, the cloning of the gene in 1989. The first would be Paul Quinton, who discovered the defect in 1983, then the cloning of the gene, and now the development of these new types of drugs. Is he the researcher that harvested his own sweat glands? Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, the way people take cores of the ocean, he would take cores of his skin. And he showed me his lower limbs, his arms and his lower legs have these little scars from where he cored out skin samples. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Listen next week for the next part of The Path to Finding a Cure for Cystic Fibrosis with Bidjal Trevedi, writer of Breath from Salt. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And finally... The last two finalists for FameLab Australia 2020. Valeria Sanagalia with Dolphin Facebook and and Dr. Laura McCorkey on tackling the antibiotic resistance crisis. Hi, my name is Valeria Sanagalia. I am from Murdoch University and my FameLab presentation is called Dolphin's Facebook. Now, I'm Italian. We are all about the food. My Facebook account is full of pictures of pizza, pasta, tiramisu. Now imagine a dolphin Facebook. It would be a picture of fish for breakfast, fish for lunch, and you got it, fish for dinner. And while most dolphins would go out and catch their own fish, some of them get takeaway from humans. They give it to them so they come closer. And just one fish, how bad can it be? Well, I spent over 200 hours following dolphin and four years of a PhD to answer this very question. And I can tell you that one fish can lead to a sea of trouble. My PhD is about food, dolphin, humans, and relationship. Dolphin have complex relationship. Some last only a few hours, like ours. Others can last a lifetime. And their social network, influence every aspect of your life, how they raise their young, how disease spread across the population, no social distancing there, but also how they face a stressful situation. Let's say many noisy boats, tourists everywhere, annoying researchers. So to keep track of this important relationship, I take picture of their dorsal fin. The profile of it, just like mine, is unique and I can use it to identify single dolphin and following them through time and identify their friends as well. Now, based on my own data and 10 years of research before me, I discovered that that dolphin that come close to your boat and your boat and that other boat and accept food, then teach to their calf to associate human with food. So their calves spend more time close to dangerous propeller than not playing and socializing with other calves. 
they miss out on very important learning opportunity from their peers. This can have an effect on their well-being. So really the best way to help a dolphin is not helping a dolphin. Give a dolphin a fish and you will feed it for a snack. But let a dolphin play and it will learn to fish for life. Hello, my name is Laura McCaukey and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney. And tonight I'm going to be talking to you about tackling the problem of antibiotic resistance. Antibiotic resistance is when bacteria can fight off the effects of some or even all of the antibiotics that we currently have available in hospitals and GP clinics. Even if you have never taken an antibiotic in your life, you can still be infected with bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. This means antibiotic resistance has the potential to affect anyone of any age in any country, and that includes you. And the problem of antibiotic resistance has been caused by our overuse and misuse of antibiotics in the last few decades. I must have talked about the problem of antibiotic resistance hundreds of times over the last few years. And when I do, I normally talk about a post-antibiotic era. And I'll say something like, imagine a post-antibiotic era where bacterial infections can spread unchallenged, antibiotics no longer work, and your only chances of survival are your immune system and your luck. And I've been disappointed over the last few years that the seriousness of the problem of antibiotic resistance just hasn't been coming across. Some people don't know what antibiotic resistance is or why it's a problem. And now I think I know why. Even though I've talked about a post-antibiotic era hundreds of times, I've never imagined this. What we're currently going through with COVID-19 is what a post-antibiotic era would look like. And it's so much worse than I ever would have allowed myself to imagine. I couldn't have imagined the grief the isolation and just overwhelmingness of this whole situation. But I think once this pandemic's over and I talk to people about imagine a post-antibiotic era, people will remember this. So hopefully tackling the problem of antibiotic resistance will be taken up with a renewed vigour. And this is where I come in as a microbiologist. So my work is to develop new antibiotics and to figure out how these antibiotics work. So to this end, I have discovered a new protein antibiotic called Piacin-L1. And I've solved the crystal structure of Piacin-L1, so I know exactly what it looks like. And that's really useful when you're trying to figure out how an antibiotic works. I've also identified a component on the surface of bacteria that the Piacin antibiotic binds to in order to get inside the cell. And I've identified a component inside the bacterial cell that Piacin-L1 has an effect on that can cause cell death. So why is my work important? Well, if I can identify what Piacin-L1 looks like, what it binds to on the surface of bacteria, and how it kills the bacterial cells, then this will help it get approved for human use. Which means we will then have a new weapon to use in our fight to tackle the problem of antibiotic resistance. That was Dr Laura McCorkey on tackling the antibiotic resistance crisis and Valeria Senegalia with Dolphin Facebook. FameLab Australia is organised by the Foundation for the Western Australian Museum. 
FameLab is an international science communication competition to find and mentor young researchers to share their stories with the world. From the laboratories of your name here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages. No longer a dream, but a reality was your product here. A brighter future unfolded thanks to your name here. Employment boom. Not only in the vast modern facilities of your name here, but in factories everywhere. Geared to supply this vital new industry that is reshaping our economy and transforming the lives of millions. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.